0: This is the Vamal Podcast with Marty Solomon. I'm his co-host Brent Billings. Today we have a little bit different episode for you. Marty uh, interacts with the story of Peter walking in the water by sharing some of his thoughts originally written years ago.
1: Yeah. So my daughter today, Abigail, she is 10 years old at the time of this recording. And uh, when she was two, so that'd be eight years ago, um, I wrote a book. And then I wrote a book a few years later for my son. I just realized when I was a parent and I was watching my kids when they were really little, particularly as they got out of infancy and became toddlers, like I was seeing all of these things in my kids that uh, I just, I don't even know if I know how to articulate it. I became profoundly aware of I'm getting a glimpse of a perspective I've never had before in my life. And that's not a knock on single people or people that aren't able to have children or any of those things. I don't want that to be perceived that way. It was just me making observations about the life that I was experiencing. And uh, out of that, I wrote a book and it's not a book for publication. I never wrote it to be published. Someday, Brent and I, we've chatted about, maybe I'll get it edited and proofread and have it in some form where people can get it for a donation or something like that. I don't know. Maybe someday. But today we don't have that. Um, and uh, But I, I wrote this book just for my kids. I wrote a book for Abigail, and then I wrote a book for Ezekiel. Abigail's book was called When Two-Year-Olds Preach, and then Ezekiel's book was called When Five-Year-Olds Preach. And I took all the content of that book from that stage of their development. For Abigail, it was when she was kind of zero to two, and then Zeke, it was kind of from that, three to five age range. And I wrote these books about observations that I was making. So one of those chapters, and of course, you know, me, I intermixed, it wasn't just about watching my kids. It was about the Bible. So I was taking Bible lessons, kind of learning them through the lens of my children, and then writing about Bible lessons through my, through the lessons I learned with my kids. So one of those was on the next story in Matthew, which is Peter walking on water. And I just have, I've just loved it. I have a hard time teaching on the story. That's really not true. But when I get an opportunity to teach and use the chapter that I wrote years ago, I love to share it that way. So that's what I'm going to do today. But we've made a promise, Brent Billings. Yeah, I
0: think maybe just to set the stage. Yes. I should read the passage at hand. and then, Perfect. And then you can share your thoughts. All right. Sounds good. So this is uh, the end of Matthew 14. Immediately, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. After he had dismissed them, he went up on a mountainside by himself to pray. Later that night, he was there alone, and the boat was already a considerable distance from the land, buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. Shortly before dawn, Jesus went out to them, walking on the lake. When the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and cried out in fear. But Jesus immediately said to them, Take courage, it is I. Don't be afraid. Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you on the water. Come, he said. Then Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water, and came toward Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid, and beginning to sink, cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You of little faith, he said. Why did you doubt? And when they climbed into the boat, the wind died down. Then those who were in the boat worshiped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. When they had crossed over, they landed at Gennesaret. And when the men of that place recognized Jesus, they sent word to all the surrounding country. People brought all their sick to him and begged him to let the sick just touch the edge of his cloak, and all who touched it were healed.
1: All right. So I'm going to read a chapter from this book. I'm just going to be reading. So sorry for the awkwardness, but be prepared for that. Uh, wrote a chapter titled She Giggled. And uh, here it is. I continue to be fascinated by Jesus' exhortation to have faith like a child. There is something about the nature of a child's understanding of his or her world that Jesus finds exemplary. It's hard for me, if I'm honest, to actually consider a child being an example of faith. At best, I thought of this lesson as cute, but certainly not packed with precious depth. And yet, I guess I've interacted with enough of Jesus' teachings to know better. As a Jewish rabbi teaching his disciples valuable and important lessons, I know that if a rabbi such as Jesus takes the time to set up a scenario and then uses it as a picture of spiritual formation, the listeners had better take note. Visible lessons from the rabbi are never intended to be empty or easy for that matter. In short, I need to stop treating that lesson as, a trivial, uh, that lesson as trivial or something that belongs on flannel graph. Part of my experience as a father, as I continue to make valuable observations, has been to notice how much profound depth there is to this very lesson. As the story goes on in one gospel, Jesus gathers the children around him. How how long does this gathering and discussion take place? We're not told. I have always assumed that Jesus takes about 20 seconds to gather some kids up, looks at his disciples and other listeners, and says, "'Unless you have faith like a child, you cannot enter the kingdom.'" Then I have always imagined him ushering the children away so that he could proceed with his much more important, significant, and profound rabbinical teachings for the day. But after watching children at great length, I have begun to question my chronological assumptions. Perhaps this wasn't merely a two-minute lesson that day. Perhaps it didn't resemble the silly children's sermon the pastor gives before the real message. Perhaps this teaching was much more profound than I had realized. Let me just suggest another possible scenario. Imagine Jesus and the disciples arose that morning, went out to their typical duties, gathered in the synagogue study room for morning readings and left for the day's adventures. I picture maybe Matthew asking the question, Rabbi, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? I picture Jesus pausing, silently gazing off into a nearby village and without a word, marching off in the direction of the houses. Jesus arrives on the outskirts of the village and sees a whole host of children, 10 or 15 of them playing in a courtyard. He leads his disciples into the courtyard with the honored parents watching and welcoming him and his disciples, gracious to have such esteemed guests. The disciples, of course, are watching, paying attention to Jesus' every move as he scoops up a child and begins to playfully interact with the children. As a disciple, of course, your main duty is to mimic every move of your rabbi, and so you begin to engage the children in horseplay as well. I imagine Jesus and his disciples spending the day with the children, telling stories, playing games, maybe even taking naps. And as the day begins to come to a close, the family insists you stay for dinner. As you begin to recline in the shade of a nearby tree, Jesus speaks some of the first and only words he's spoken to you all day. Watch the children. You watch and you recline as you eat. And as the sun begins to set in the sky, Jesus calls one of the children over by name. He takes him and pulls him close under his arm, and he looks around at all of his disciples, making eye contact with all of them. I tell you the truth, Jesus says, unless you change and become like little children, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself as this little child will be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. I have discovered there are great lessons to be learned from watching children. Not too long ago, mom was at work. That's my wife, by the way, mom. I uh, was at work, and it was a nice day outside for a blustery winter in Idaho. It was uh, just dad and daughter, so I took her to a local park. In a rare moment for this control freak of a father, I decided I just wanted to let my daughter be. I wasn't going to assume that toys or swings were what her entertain- her entertainment of choice would be for the day. I would watch her and keep her out of trouble, but I had this desire to see what she would do if she was left to be the captain of her own ship. She had just learned to walk. The whole experience of learning to walk was an incredible thing to behold as a parent. There are certain milestones you wait for in a newborn's life. The first time she rolls over, the first crawl, the first tooth, but there's nothing that compares to the ability of walking. There's the sheer panic the parent feels when their kid isn't walking as soon as their friend's kid is. You begin to question whether or not your child is going to be okay just a few weeks after all the other children are walking. It's an interesting thing, really. You don't obsess over teeth or weight like you do walking. And I can remember the joy of seeing my child learn to crawl or mutter her first words, but nothing compares to the pure thrill of those first five or six steps. It's an incredible high, a rush of adrenaline, and cheering with the look of bliss and joy covering your child's face. It's a look that says they are having the ride of their life in their own two legs for the first time. It's a look that says she is so happy to be the joy of her parents. It's a great look but anyway back to the park she had just learned how to walk and walking was as they say the cat's meow she was on top of the world just walking around in the grass and i was here only to watch enjoy and keep her from disappearing into a sprinkler hole at one point in our afternoon she walked off to the side of the park and down a very slight slope i say slight from the perspective of someone who stands six foot four inches tall not as a one-year-old I was actually quite impressed as she had not fallen face-first on the way down the slope. Now, however, she had turned around and decided she was ready to make her ascent back up this hill. What I witnessed next was very simple. But what I witnessed next I will never forget as long as I live. This upward slope was a brand new experience for her. She had never encountered the physics of walking uphill. She attempted to take a step and immediately fell backward. The green grass was nice and long from a whole fall and winter season of no lawnmowers. She was unhurt. There was no need for Dad to step in. I could just continue to observe. She giggled. She got back up, which is not an easy process for a one-year-old just learning to walk in the grass. She attempted to take a step. She fell. She got up. She attempted to take a step. She fell. She got up. She fell she giggled. I expected to hear a cry or a whimper, but one never came. I expected to hear her whine and stretch out her hand to dad for assistance, but she was just fine. She giggled. And she got up and she tried again and she fell. Without exaggerating, I can honestly say this process repeated itself a good 20 times before anything changed. Each and every time she got up, she stepped, she fell, and every now and again, she would giggle. At this point, she had begun to make some adjustments based on her newfound data in this one-year-old physics laboratory of sorts. She shifted her weight differently. She took her time. She placed her feet differently in relation to her body and the slope. She placed her feet, took a step, and took another step. She remained upright. She screamed a a happy little girly scream. She took another step, and she fell. And she giggled. There is a story in the Gospels that we all know quite well. It's a story of Peter walking on the water. It's an amazing story that fascinates us to no end. Our Western minds are blown away as we consider the possibility of a man pursuing Jesus out onto the waves of the Sea of Galilee performing such a miraculous feat to mirror that of his rabbi. It's almost too much for us to believe, and then just as we're beginning to become skeptical, Peter meets all of the worldly expectations and succumbs to the failure we've all been wishing he would defeat as our representative. He wavers, he fails, and he sinks. I've seen the look in too many people's eyes as they read that story. It's this look of hopeful disbelief followed by a that's what I thought would happen expression on their face. Even if they've read the story a thousand times, I will sometimes see this expression or hear this tone. We then listen as Jesus scolds Peter's faith while we all readily put ourselves into Peter's shoes and share his scolding and we nod. But there's so much more taking place in this story. Much has been taught about the story already, so I don't want to be accused of plagiarizing anything. Ray Vanderlaan has an excellent treatment of this subject in That the World May Know, a series put out by Focus on the Family. It's actually in DVD 6, by the way, Brent, if we want to put that in the show notes. Uh, The lesson is called In the Dust of the Rabbi, and that series was published by Zondervan. Rob Bell, as well, treated the subject very well in Velvet Elvis, published by Zondervan in 2005. And another great and concise source of reference for this story can be found in his Numa video entitled Dust. I could not recommend these resources enough. And, And Rob had Ray as a teacher at one point, and all this material has been shared amongst us, so I don't want to plagiarize any of that stuff. Back to my reading. The first century concept of discipleship was such that the most successful thing you could do in the Jewish culture, the thing they valued the most, was the study of Torah. One of the pinnacle experiences of the Jewish school system was being given the opportunity to become a Talmid, or as we say it, a disciple. If you thought you had what it takes as a student of the Torah, you would apply for discipleship under a rabbi. One of the greatest honors a boy could receive would be the acceptance of a rabbi to be his Talmid. If a rabbi chose you as a disciple, he was in essence saying to you, I believe you have what it takes to become just like me. It was a great honor. So the path of a disciple was a path of memorizing the rabbi's teachings, taking on the rabbi's set of interpretations, and most importantly, becoming just like the rabbi. This meant that you spent all day, every day, trying to mimic the thoughts, actions, and teachings of your teacher. Some Jewish scholars say that they have seen a rabbi proceed into a restroom. I actually have a friend that says he saw this in an airport. And in his wake are 10 or 12 young disciples. You want to be just like your rabbi. If your rabbi does it, you do it. And you know that you can do it because if you could not have done it, the rabbi would have never called you. The rabbi's call is his affirmation in your ability and your potential. Peter finds himself in a boat that night with the other disciples, and they end up encountering Jesus, who happens to be walking on the water. If Jesus is walking on the water, what does Peter want to do? He wants to be just like his rabbi. Lord, if it's really you, call me out to you on the water. Come. And Peter does. He walks on the water. It's an incredible story. Peter is a true disciple. And then Peter sinks. But why does Peter sink? The answer for many of us is that Peter loses faith. He sees the wind and the waves and he loses faith. That is correct. But as Bell asks, whom does he lose faith in? Jesus? Jesus is not sinking. Jesus is doing just fine. Does Peter lose faith in Jesus's ability to help him walk on water? Or does Peter lose faith in himself? Jesus rescues Peter, pulls him into the boat, and then asks, "O oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Is this actually a rabbinical scolding of Peter's failure to accomplish his task? Or is this question of Jesus actually driving at his belief in Peter? Peter, if you didn't have what it takes to walk on water, I never would have called you out. If you have everything, you have everything you need to do this. I believe in you, Peter. You can do whatever I call you to do. I will never ask you to do something you cannot do. Listen to what Rob Bell says in Velvet Elvis. So at the end of his time with his disciples, Jesus had some final words for them. He tells them to go to the ends of the earth and make more disciples, and then he leaves. He promises to send a spirit to guide them and give them power, but Jesus himself leaves the future of the movement in their hands and he doesn't stick around to make sure they don't screw it up. He's gone. He trusts that they can actually do it. God has an incredibly high view of people. God believes that people are capable of amazing things. I have been told that I need to believe in Jesus, which is a good thing, but what I'm learning is that Jesus believes in me. I have been told that I need to have faith in God, which is a good thing, but what I'm learning is that God has faith in me. The rabbi Thinks we can be like him. I often watch my children and wonder when it was that I lost faith in myself. I'm not talking about a narcissistic faith that seems to elevate my standing in God's created order and lacks humility. I'm certainly not trying to promote some humanistic worldview that seems to assert that the answer to all of our ills somehow lies within us. I truly and earnestly believe that the hope for all of this world's brokenness lies in the power of the resurrected Christ and the reality of Jesus but I'm talking about faith in myself that recognizes that I'm made in the image of God, the kind of faith that might actually be willing to believe there must be something worth loving and worth saving if God was willing to save it through the story of the cross. I wonder, as I watch my children, how it was that my innocence was somehow connected with my confidence. Boy, there's another chapter or two just waiting to be written there, isn't there? Jesus tells me that if I were to watch children for a little while, I would probably do, it would probably do me some good. That if I cannot change and become like little children, the kingdom will be out of my reach. One of the things that I'm noticing about children is they have incredible faith in themselves. They know that dad is there, and they know that mom is there, and they know they are loved, and they just want to play and smile and laugh and tumble. It seems like later on in life, we begin to question all of those things is dad really there for me? Am I really worth loving? Can I really do this? And we try to do the things we know in our hearts we were created to do. We step out of the boat and we begin to walk, but we know the wind and the waves are out there somewhere, just waiting to sabotage our one fleeting moment of weak courage. We try and we sink. And we're not surprised really, are we? We knew it would happen just like this. There's no way we could ever walk on water. So we grab for our life preserver, we climb back into the boat, and we hold our gaze on the floor as we take the scolding that we knew he had coming. Oh, me of little faith. Oh, me, the big doubter. It's just another failed attempt to live out what God intends for my life. When will I ever learn? I should just get used to this and stay in the boat next time. It will save me the humiliation and the pain and the failure. It's much safer and nicer here in the boat. Yeah, next time I won't be so silly. I picture Jesus grabbing me by the chin and jerking my head up, waiting for my gaze to meet his. And with a divine sparkle in his eye, he looks into my soul, the soul he knows intimately because he personally knit it together. And he says to me, you can do this. I go back in my mind and remember my daughter on that slope. 20 times. 30 times. Ten minutes later, we have finally traversed the 12 feet that leads the top of that slope. And she laughs and she giggles and she prances and waddles along the now level ground. And she is thrilled to be at the top and to run and play with ease. Of course, she was happy to be at the bottom of the slope, too. I've come to a new realization. I want to learn how to giggle. I would never suggest that we trivialize sin for even a moment. I'm not saying that failure is somehow okay and God doesn't care about our success. I'm not one of the Jesus followers who seems to whip God's grace around like it's a get-out-of-jail-free card from the Monopoly game of life. In fact, I've noticed it's the very fact that I take my sin so seriously that I end up being so incapacitated. But there's something here that I'm supposed to learn from my daughter. There's something about that slope in the park that's bringing me closer to the kingdom of heaven. I'm tired of being immobilized by my failures. I'm tired of being the guy who knows there's no way he can pull this off. I'm tired of having a laundry list of excuses. I'm tired of letting this stinking slope get the better of me. I'm tired of wondering whether or not my father is there for me. I'm tired of trying to decide if I'm really worth being loved. I'm tired of worrying about what the world wants from me and expects from me and thinks of me and says about me. And I can't just snap my fingers and make the slope go away. My problems and my hiccups and my sins are things that I'm going to have to deal with. I'm going to have to get over the problems that seem to keep me down. The Spirit of God is trying to complete the work within me that He started a long time ago. I have some falling to do, and I have plenty of getting up to do. And I have a salvation that needs to be worked out with fear and trembling, and it's going to take some effort. But I wonder if God would rather sit in a boat and say, You of little faith or if he'd rather sit on a park bench and watch his child learn how to walk. I wonder if he could actually sit back and enjoy himself, if we could learn how to fall and get up and fall and get up and keep believing and keep getting back up and keep refusing to give up because we're going to make it up this slope and we're just so glad to be with Dad and to be loved and to know that we are okay. I know that I love to watch my daughter learn new things and not be stopped by her failures. I love to watch her giggle I want to learn
0: how to giggle. That's the chapter, Mr. Billings. I have to say that it uh, <clears throat> means a little bit more this time than the first time that I heard it. Yeah. <laughs> now that I have a child. <laughs> now that you have your own, you are on your own journey here. Not walking yet, but but uh, the the principles apply. Yes, absolutely. So we're going to offer up, if if anyone wants to read the transcript, essentially, of that. Sure. It's, uh, it yeah. goes across two different blog posts that you wrote Back in 2015, and I think the original material is from even before that, right? Yep,
1: twenty, yeah, 20, 2011,
0: really. 2012, I think, when I pinned it. So we'll have links to uh, those two posts in the show notes, as well as the uh, three works that you referenced earlier. I'll throw one more in okay. there, too, by all the way. Right.
1: If you love the spirit of this podcast, uh, read Prototype by Jonathan Martin. Just one of my favorite books. Uh, premise of that book is that we all have this This awareness that I'm writing about here, this innocence of a child, it's all in us. And uh, he talks about being that little boy on a bike. Um, And uh, so just really, really, really good book. So Prototype by Jonathan Martin.
0: All right. That'll do it for this episode. Uh, If anyone has any thoughts, comments, concerns, uh, you can go to BaymontEstablishment.com and contact us there. Uh, That'll send an email to Marty or you can find us on Twitter at Marty Solomon. I'm at EIBCB. And, uh, thanks for joining us on the BMW podcast. We'll talk to you again soon.